Well, we're going to continue our epic series. I hope you enjoyed that video. You better have. Um, that was fun. Hey, I, I want to do a couple things as we get started this before I really jump into things this morning. Uh, first, I just want to say uh, thank you uh, to JD for leading our worship. Uh, he's been here the last uh, couple of months, and uh, next week he's headed to California, and then uh, after that he's headed back over to um, First Christian, the church that planted us, and uh, back to doing things there. But I just want to say thank you to him. Uh, JD has a full-time job, and it takes a lot of his effort, and uh, so when we asked him to come over, we said we'd just do something even really simple that would just uh, give us the opportunity every week to connect with God. And so, uh, J.D., thanks, and uh, thanks to Roger and Ben for uh, coming over and uh, playing with them today. Really appreciate you guys. Second thing, yeah, go ahead. The second thing is uh, I just, uh, I have been gripped, I'm sure as you have, by the story this week of the Fort Myers police officer who lost his wife in the line of duty in a shooting and uh, just really saddened for him. And I, I just think it's very appropriate if we take a minute right now and uh, pray for that family, a wife and three children, and just a really difficult time that they're going through. So let's uh, pray for them right now. God, I am um, just heartbroken today as I think about this tragedy. And God, I just pray for the family today. I pray that you would be strength to them. God, I can't imagine what it's like for them to wake up this morning a mom and three kids, and the grief and hurt and they must feel in their heart. God, I pray that You would surround them with people who love them. Surround them, God, in Your presence. God, would You just be a comfort and a strength to them as they take this journey. God, I am thankful today that I've, as I've read about this officer's faith, God, that he was a follower of Yours. And so we find some comfort today, God, in knowing that in this very moment he's in Your presence. And Father, His suffering is over. And Father, it's also comforting to know that the wife and three kids are followers of Yours. And God, I know that they are finding strength in that in this moment. God, I just also want to lift up the entire force, the police force in Fort Myers. God, would You just be a comfort to them? And God, would You show Yourself through this? And would You work through this to bring attention to You, God, and to glory to You? Thank you, Father, for how you'll work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And I just want to encourage you to uh, continue to pray for them and the days to come will not uh, get easier uh, for quite some time. Well, let's jump into this series. I, I mean, I tell you this. If you like a uh, good uh, mystery novel that's uh, got uh, villains and heroes, that's got intrigue and uh, suspense, if you like a story that's got a couple of assassination plots and uh, then a happy ending, you will love the epic story of Esther. And we're going to dive into just part of it today, and I want to really encourage you. I hope you'll go home and to read the rest of this story. It's an amazing story. It's the kind of story that you read it and you go, man, I ought to read my Bible more often. And you're right, you should, because it is filled with great stuff. And so I just encourage you, we'll get through part of it today, but so you go home and read the rest of it this week. Well, I don't know if this ever happens to you. My wife tells me maybe I should go see the doctor or something, but... Um, this ever happened to you? You sit in the living room or somewhere and you think of something that you ought to go and get out of the kitchen or maybe the bedroom. And you get up and you make that really incredibly long walk to the kitchen or bedroom. And by the time you get there, you can't remember what it is that you were going after in the first place. Or uh, this happens to me at work sometimes. I'll be sitting at my desk working and I think of something that I need to tell my assistant Kim or go and get from her office. And so I get up and walk all the way in there and it's a long distance, a long way. And I walk those few steps and I can't remember what it was that I came for. 
what, I, what I'm doing there. And here's the part that's really scary probably to you. There have been a couple of times where I've actually gotten in the car and drove to the store, and I get to the store, and I can't remember what it is that I'm there for. And I'll be really honest, there's even one time I, that happened, I got out of the car and went into the store thinking if I walk up and down the aisles, maybe something will trigger my memory and I'll remember what in the world I'm doing here in the first place. I don't remember if it worked or not. And again, my wife says, Jeff, there's something wrong with you. You probably ought to go get that checked out. Can you relate to that at all? You know what? I think it can happen in life. That we can get to a certain point in life and we begin to wonder, why am I here? It happens in life. Maybe when we graduate from high school. You know, we are, are filled with all these ideas of things that we want to accomplish in life. And we go off maybe to college and we earn our degree and we land that first job. And maybe somewhere along in there we get married and life just really begins to roll along. And suddenly you pull up to age 30 or 37 or 44 and you think, why am I here? Well, what's my purpose? I think as Christ followers, for some of us, it can happen in our spiritual journey that we're kind of rolling along. We, we begin to follow God and we think, oh, I, have, I want to accomplish His mission in my life. And we get distracted by other things, by the complexities of life, or maybe we are pursuing a career, uh, maybe uh, you know, really captivated by some nice things and whatever it is. And suddenly, somewhere along in the journey, we kind of stop and go, why am I here again? What was it that God wanted me to accomplish? What's my purpose? I think that's why the book, The Purpose Driven Life, is uh, such a popular book. It's, uh, it's sold over 25 million copies since 2003. In fact, it has become the biggest selling hardback nonfiction book in history. And I think that's because a lot of people are saying, what is my purpose? Why am I here? And I think a lot of people get to the point in life where they are asking that question and wondering, why am I here? What am I supposed to do? Now, in the epic story of Esther, here is a woman who I think understands her mission, understands why she is here. And I think there are some things from this story that we can learn today that can help us to realize for the first time, or maybe in a lot of our cases, remind us, why am I here? What's my purpose? Well, I want us to jump into the story. It's found in the book of Esther. Uh, chapter 1 is where we're going to begin. Esther uh, follows books like First uh, and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and the book of Nehemiah. If you get to books like Job, Psalms, and Proverbs, you've gone too far. We're in, starting chapter 1, and I hope you'll pull out your Bibles and read along with us. Now, here's the setting of the story. This story takes place in the country of Persia, specifically in the capital city of Susa, which was located um, north of the Persian Gulf, kind of east of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in what would be modern-day Iran. It happened 90 years after the people of Jerusalem, the Jews, the Israelites, had been taken captive by the Babylonians. And uh, the Babylonians were, they were the empire of the day. They were the superpower of their day. And they had taken the Jews captive. Now, over those 90 years, some of the Jewish people, including maybe you've heard the Bible name Nehemiah, people like that, had gone back to Jerusalem to try to rebuild the walls of the city and to uh, rebuild the temple. But a lot of the people, including Esther, remained in a settlement in Persia. And that's where we pick up the story as we begin this morning. Esther chapter 1, verse 1 says, This is what happened during the time of King Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. He rules over a lot of territory, a lot of land. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, just the third year, 
He gave a banquet for all the nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. Now, I read one scholar this week, one commentary about this passage that said he thinks that that means as many as ten to 15,000 people could have been involved in this party. King Xerxes is a party animal. I mean, listen, the next verse. For a full 180 days, that's six months, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor of, and glory of his majesty. This party goes on for six months. And the party is all about King Xerxes saying, let me show you how powerful I am. Let me show you the immensity of my wealth. Let me show you my strength. It was a very prideful kind of thing. The story continues, verse 5. When these days, this first banquet, were over, the king gave a banquet. It's a second banquet. Lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all of the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. Now this second party is for everybody. I want you to imagine the most extravagant wedding or party that you've ever gone to. And I want you to also think about the kind of money that whoever threw the party or wedding spent on that extravagance. Now, whatever you're picturing, I don't think it probably compares with the extravagance of this party. Listen to the decorations. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Not bad, huh? Wine, it says, was served in goblets of gold. Each one different from the other. So he serves all these people wine in goblets of gold. None of them are alike. Talk about extravagance. And it says the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. In other words, it could be translated that the wine flowed liberally or that it flowed without restraint. This was a big time party. Big time party. And in the midst of this party, as it continues to go on, listen to what happens in verse 11. King Xerxes has been showing off everything in his kingdom. He's got one more thing he wants to show off. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, yeah, I bet he was, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mahuman, Vista, Harbona, Bixa, Agbatha, Zethar, and Carcass, to bring, him, bring before him Queen Vashti. So he's showing off everything else. Now he says, I want to show off my wife, wearing her royal crown. Some scholars think the language here indicates that only her royal crown is what she was wearing in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. King Xerxes parades in, wants to parade in next his wife. Not so she can, he can show off her brains. You know, sit down and let's discuss world economics with my wife. Not so that he can show off her personality. Let's see what a delight she is at a party. No, he wants all of these guys to see the beauty, the outward beauty of his wife. I love her response. Verse 12, but when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. And then the king became furious and burned with anger. You know why he got mad? Because he got turned down in front of all his buddies. 
It hurt his pride. And in the midst of that hurt pride, he's angry. Now, I love the fact that Queen Vashti says, no way, I'm not coming. I'm not going to parade around in there in front of all your drunk buddies at the end of Miller time. No way. She tells him no. Now, he's furious. And so you know what he does? He goes to like the Supreme Court. He goes to these other rulers of the land and as if he can't make up his own mind what to do, he says, what do I do about this, guys? Well, they're kind of worried. Because in their culture, for a woman to tell a man no, that was a big deal. And they said, you know what, this attitude that your wife just demonstrated, what do we do if that spreads to all the other women in the kingdom? You've got to do something about this. So they come up with this plan that they're, going to, they're basically going to get rid of Queen Vashti. They're going to tell her, you can no longer for any reason ever come into the presence of the king. In essence, they're saying, you're no longer queen. She's gone. Now, as chapter 2 begins, King Xerxes, I guess, sobers up a little bit and he realizes, you know, that might not have been the smartest thing to do. I don't have a queen anymore. She was my wife. She's no longer allowed in my presence. So he turns to these people around him, kind of like bodyguards, a bunch of young men with a high level of testosterone, and he says, what do you guys think I ought to do? And they come up with this brilliant plan that they'll have a beauty pageant. That they'll invite the most beautiful woman in each of the 127 provinces to come and they'll have a pageant. And whichever one of these women wows the king, she'll be the new queen. Now among these girls who were the most beautiful in their province was a young Jewish girl named Esther. And Esther had been raised as an orphan by her cousin Mordecai. The relationship between Esther and Mordecai was very close, very tight, very precious. The Bible says that Esther was lovely in form and features. In other words, she was an incredibly beautiful woman. She's brought to the city of Susa, and I don't know how they did it, but they sort of narrowed it down to some finalists, and they said these finalists will each get one time to appear before the king, and whichever one of them turns his head... She's the new queen. But listen what had to happen before any of them could begin to appear before the king. Verse 12. And before I read this, I want you to think, ladies, what's the longest period of time you've ever spent getting ready for a date? Maybe a few hours maybe? I mean, maybe if it was a really big deal, you could say and stretch it and say it was a whole week because you know, maybe early in the week you went and got your hair cut or fixed or whatever and you know you went to the tanning salon or whatever and... I mean, maybe a week or maybe let's say even for your wedding, you know, where you started weeks ahead of time and you thought, oh, I need to lose a couple of pounds because I want to make sure I fit in my dress and I'm going to go to the tanning spa for a while. And even at that, listen to what was required before they went before the king. Before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months, that's a year, of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months of oil with myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. An entire year of beauty treatments before they would appear before the king. And that's where the goofy video came out of, that whole idea of all this beauty treatment. So Queen Esther has her treatments and finally it's her moment to be before King Xerxes. And the king is impressed. He's wild. And he determines this is the most beautiful woman that's come before me. She is the new queen. She becomes his wife. And then they live happily ever after, right? Well, not exactly, not right away at least. The story has a few twists and turns before we get to the happily ever after part. 
Listen to what happens in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. After these events, after she has been made queen, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all of the other nobles. He has this guy in his kingdom that he gives a huge promotion to. Not sure it was a good choice. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai, remember him? This is Esther's cousin who has raised her. He was a Jew. Mordecai would not kneel down and pay him honor. Why? Because Mordecai was a follower of God and he believed the only being that was worthy of someone bowing down to them and worshiping them was God. And so he refused. Verse 3, Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Now can't you hear him every day? Come on, Mordecai, just bow down today. What's the big deal? Just do it real quick. You know, it's not going to matter. If you don't do this, you're going to end up in big trouble, we're telling you. Just, just do it. Just bow down. But he won't do it. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. They want to see if there's going to be a reaction to this. I mean, if he's getting away with not bowing down, maybe we won't do it either. For he had told them he was a Jew. Now, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Haman says, this is my chance. Not only am I going to try to get rid of Mordecai, I'm going to try to wipe out all of the Jewish people who remain. So he goes to King Xerxes and he basically says, you know what, he offers him a bribe is what he does. He says, I'll give you these 300 tons of silver into your kingdom if you'll issue an order or if you'll let me issue an order about the Jewish people. King says, yeah, whatever, you do whatever you want. And so Haman issues this order to all of the kingdom, all 127 provinces that says on this particular day, all of the Jewish people are to be killed. Now when Mordecai hears about this, he can't believe it. He, he rips his clothing. He puts on sackcloth and ashes and he goes out into the streets and he cries out bitterly like a wailing kind of sound. Now, one way that was often done was as a sign of grieving, but that action could also be perceived as kind of a, a, political, uh, a political action, kind of like picketing in protest in front of the White House or something. It took a lot of courage for Mordecai to show his dissatisfaction with this decision. Mordecai realizes, though, in the midst of all this, there's really only one hope. The only person that really can put a stop to this is Queen Esther. She's the only one that can get the king to not kill all of the Jews. Listen to what happens beginning in chapter 4, verse 11. All of the king's officials and the people of the province know... Let me back up before I read that and tell you this. So Mordecai says, Esther, you need to go in and beg the king not to do this. It's up to you, Esther. So they send messages back and forth a couple of times. But then here's her response to Mordecai's request to go into the king. She says, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. 
Then she gives one more little reminder here. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Esther says, Mordecai, wait a minute. Remember something. Anyone who goes into the king's presence without being invited there can be killed. And what's more, you know, for 30 days now, he hasn't invited me into his presence. Our relationship isn't exactly like when we first got married. I'm not so high on his list anymore. And you're telling me I have to go in there? Mordecai encourages her. Esther, it's up to you. So here was Esther's reply after thinking about it some more. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. Now implied in this idea of fasting is that they were also praying. They were saying, let's ask God. You get together all the Jews who still live here in the city of Susa and I'll get together with my maids and let's ask God, am I supposed to do this? When this is done, she says, I will go to the king even though it is against the law and if I perish, I perish. I love this woman. She says, I'll do it. If God says, do it, I'll do it. Even if it means that I die. Well, she does go before the king. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. Now, I'm guessing she is praying pretty hard here. Please let him extend the scepter. Please don't let him kill me. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of his scepter. And here's kind of the rest of the story in a quick glance. Because of Esther's action on this day, the Jewish people, their lives are spared. They don't have to suffer. Now, there's a lot of plot that still unfolds. Haman is a, a villain in this story, and he has this plot to try to kill Mordecai. So Esther, you know, when she goes in to see the king, is kind of aware of some of this that's going on. And so when she appears before him, she doesn't immediately give her request. She invites the king and Haman over for dinner one night. And when they come, she extends it to another night. Haman has this thing where he actually prepares a gallows to have Mordecai hung. But as the story twists and turns, it ends up being Haman himself that gets hung on those gallows. Mordecai gets a big promotion in the kingdom. And as you get to the end of the story, I guess you could say that Queen Esther and King Xerxes, in a sense, live happily ever after. And the Jewish people's lives are spared. Now imagine that moment when Mordecai says to Queen Esther, you need to go to the king. He was saying the fate of an entire nation of people, the dream of God's people, the Jewish people, is in your hands. I know you didn't ask for this, but you've got it. Esther, you, this is your moment. It's up to you. This is your divine moment. You need to seize the moment. He says to her, you know what? This position that you find yourself in, you're not in this position so that you can accumulate a beautiful wardrobe and precious gems. 
and exotic fragrances. You haven't been brought to this position in life so that you can be the most beautiful or attractive woman in the kingdom. You haven't been brought to this position even for the reasons that the king thinks that you've been brought here. No, you have been brought to this position for such a time as this, he says. For this moment, you've been brought to this position. Esther, it's your moment. Will you seize the divine moment? And she does. She seizes this moment and she understands what it says in verse 14 of chapter 2 when it says that you have been brought to this royal position for such a time as this. You know, here's what I think about this story. She understands and seizes her divine moment. I think there are plenty of moments in our lives where we have the opportunity to seize divine moments. We have plenty of times in our life where God says, you know what, I am inviting you to join me in what I'm up to on the earth. I am inviting you to be part of what I am doing to redeem all of mankind. Now, you know what, a lot of times for us, our moment doesn't come as a single moment. I think there are a lot of divine moments along the way. And when our divine moments come, our choices may not change the course of an entire group of people in a nation. But I am absolutely convinced that if we would seize our divine moments, we could change the direction of one life or one office or one classroom or one team. The question is, will we seize our divine moments? Do you notice what Esther does before she enters into the king's presence that day, she prays, she fasts, she asks God. And you know what, for you and I, it probably doesn't mean that we need to fast for three or four days because usually what we're being asked to do doesn't require us risking our lives. But asking God is always the right choice. And it can happen very quickly. It can happen in those moments just before we have that opportunity to say, God, do you want me to have this conversation? God, what am I supposed to say? God, are you in this? Am I joining you in something that you are doing? And I believe God, through His Spirit, directs us. There is this thing that happens in our hearts and our minds that says, yes, do it. But you know what? We tend to be overly cautious. I think so much of Esther's courage here. Has this ever happened to you where you're maybe like driving down the road and you see a stranded motorist on the side of the road and so you feel like maybe I'm supposed to stop and help them? But if you're like me, I get in this conversation with God sometimes. It says, God, you know, that's kind of risky... I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not sure what would happen. I'm, I'm running late. You see, we tend to be overly cautious. We like to do what's comfortable. We pick the path of least resistance. And a lot of times we miss those divine moments because we're not courageous. When I was uh, in Bulgaria, uh, uh, there was a young lady that was part of our big group that was there, and she was actually one of the missionaries who lives in Bulgaria. And as I, I watched this girl interact all week, I just watched her and thought, you know, this girl has a lot of talent, a lot of abilities, but I'm not sure she always realizes her significant role in this team. So I kind of had this wrestling match with God for a couple of days of, hey, should I say that to her? Should I encourage her in that way? Oh, I don't know. That seems a little uncomfortable. I'm not sure how she'll respond. What difference does it make if I say that to her? But you know what? I just kept feeling like God was saying, you know what, Jeff, this, this is a moment where I want to use you. 
So towards the end of the trip, it seemed like I had asked God, would you just really make it clear if I'm supposed to do this? And there was this moment where she was standing there kind of away from the group and it was really easy for me just to say, you know what, I want to tell you. I think you're really talented and I think you have a really important role to play on this team. Now, I'm not suggesting that I change the course of her life forever, but I hope that in that moment, it was a divine moment, that I changed the course of her ministry a little bit in what she's doing in Bulgaria. I got a phone call from a couple that goes to Crosspoint here a couple of weeks ago on a Saturday, and they said, Jeff, we ran into this lady at the grocery store. She was so distraught, so just overwhelmed by life, a sick mother and finances and she was just a mess. And they said, we just stopped and talked to her a little bit and we prayed with her and we told her about Crosspoint and she showed up here the next day and we gave her some food and prayed with her again. And you know what? They could have seen that girl in the grocery store and thought, you know what? I don't want to get involved. I don't think it's my thing. But I believe that was a divine moment for them. And I think they changed the course of that young girl's life because they seized the divine moment. And I think God puts in our path maybe nearly every day these divine moments where God says, I want you to join me in the mission that I'm up to here on earth. I want you to join me in what I'm doing to redeem all of man. And we have to choose. Will we, will we seize the divine moment like Esther did? Maybe God will say to you this week, I have put you in this place, in this situation. I have put you in this position for just such a time as this. I have put you in this place just for this moment so that you can make a difference in this person's life. Maybe it's as simple as a word of encouragement or stopping to help or praying over someone. But it may be a divine moment that God wants you to seize like Esther did. I'm going to tell you a story as I wrap up. A friend of our family and somebody a lot of you know just recently became Miss Florida. Her name is Sierra Minot. And uh, in a few months, she'll participate in the Miss America pageant out in California. And uh, I am just uh, so amazed by this young woman's determination. You know, she easily could make this thing all about her outward beauty and winning a contest and all the notoriety that she will get. But as I have talked to her even yesterday at a wedding, it is so obvious that's not her heart. In fact, I want you to listen to something that she posted on her blog prior to the Miss Florida pageant. She wrote, Hello everyone. Well, I leave tomorrow morning for Miss Florida. Thank you for your continual support and prayers. And then she says this, Please continue to pray as I am entering the mission field. Win or lose, I have had an incredible journey and God is awesome. She gets it. She understands she is not involved in this. God has not placed her in this divine moment so that she can win a contest. She understands she has been placed in a divine moment that is a mission field for her. That she's going to have the opportunity to change the course of some people's lives because of her influence. And I'm confident completely that Sierra is going to seize her divine moment. And I believe that many of us this week might have a divine moment. Will you seize it? God, thank You for including us in Your mission. And thank You for this reminder in Esther's story that You have a plan for our lives. And God, when the divine moments come this week, 
Would you help us to seize them? And would you use us to make a difference in people's lives? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.